Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Privileged to be together for the study of God's Word. And uh, we're going to get about our study of Leviticus. Let's pray together. Father, with great joy, we come before you. We come before your Word. And we pray that your Spirit will open our eyes to see, our hearts to receive the Word. But also that you will, during this time, use our study of Leviticus to draw us to Christ. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, someone came up to me during the week this past week and said, I understand you're now teaching verse by verse through Leviticus. And I said, that's exactly what I'm doing. And they said, how's it going? And I said, three weeks, two verses. Uh, that, that's how it's going so far. Uh, now, it, it, will, it will pick up in the sense that there are natural breaks in the text. But Leviticus takes some, uh, some time to, to enter and, and to consider. Because for one thing, we are entering a world that even for Christians is more alien than we might like to think. When you look at even the first two verses of Leviticus, you see something that to uh, evangelical Protestants is recognizably biblical, but not recognizably liturgical. And so when we come together for worship, and, uh, and by the way, I am so thankful for the way we order Christian worship here at Third Avenue Baptist Church. It is ordered here basically as it would have been ordered during any of the major churches of the Reformation. It's, it's ordered here by the scriptures. That's, uh, that's the regulative principle at work. And so, at, at least in, uh, in, in theological theory, you ought to be able to go to any church of like practice, and basically you're going to see worship follow a very similar kind of pattern. But there is not a specificity about our worship in a way that we have already seen in just a couple of verses in Leviticus, marks the liturgical uh, responsibility of Israel regarding scrupulousness in attention to the sacrifices. There is no similar text in the New Testament that says that God orders the church, when you come together, you must do exactly this. This person is to do exactly that. Now, of course, we have the preacher of the word. We have the office of the, uh, of the elder that is set apart for teaching. We have uh, liturgical orders in the New Testament, not only for the centrality of the preaching of the word, but for singing together and uh, psalms and uh, hymns and spiritual songs. We have, we have prayer very clearly indicated both in terms of what we are taught to do and what we see modeled in the early church in the book of Acts and, and uh, in the epistles. But it's just not the same. It doesn't feel the same. There, there, there's no situation in which God called together all the church and said, I'll sit down. I'm going to tell you exactly how you are to do this. You do not deviate from this pattern. You do it in exactly this way. Now, that just calls us to the huge question, well, then, did God get looser in the New Testament? Is this, is this God who just kind of grew exhausted of, uh, of this kind of 
hyperscrupulosity, that's what the liberal biblical scholars of the 20th century called it. God's hyperscrupulous, and then in the church, he's less hyperscrupulous. Well, of course not. Number one, God doesn't change. Number two, the New Testament is not the correction of the old. That, that's just a fundamental issue. The New Testament is not the correction of the old. The new covenant is the fulfillment of the old. And so anything here that seems alien to us is fulfilled in the new covenant. That's helpful for us to understand. And that will continue as we consider much of the Mosaic law. Nothing is nullified. Not one word of scripture, not one jot, not one tittle falls away unfulfilled. There is no New Testament correction of the old in any sense. Anything that seems alien to us or odd to us is uh, that which is explained by fulfillment in Christ. And if there's any part of the Old Testament that may seem alien to us, that is fulfilled in Christ, it certainly is first and foremost the sacrificial system. Well, we began by looking at the first two verses of Leviticus. We're just going to read them and then enter into this longer passage about the first kind of offering that is detailed in Leviticus, the burnt offering. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Now, wait just a minute. One of the things we, we, we could have spent time doing, even looking at those first few words, is uh, just to remember how the Lord calls persons and speaks to them. Who's the first person? Well, it's in the opening of Genesis, the Lord called to Adam and spoke to him. This is just something about the Imago Dei. The, the, the Lord made all the creatures, but he doesn't speak to your dog. And your dog is under no impression that he does. If you think God is speaking to your dog, the problem is you. <laughs> we were talking just this, uh, just this week about the fact that the only creature that thinks COVID is a great thing is the dog. First of all, you have people staying home, which is exactly what they want. And, uh, and, and there's some, if you're quarantined, you're stuck in. And the only person you can see is the dog. And as a friend of mine said, and if you have COVID, you can't smell the dog. <laughs> and so the dogs think it's a very good deal. God made all the creatures for his glory, but he speaks only to us. And at numerous times, the Lord will call to someone and speak to them. In this case, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offspring, your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If, this, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire 
and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Five major kinds of offerings or sacrifices that we will find in Leviticus. First, the burnt offering, and that's where we are right now. And then the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And if that sounds complicated, it is. We will take every one of them in turn. But the first is the burnt offering. And this burnt offering is not explicitly a sacrifice for sin. It is a sacrifice for worship. So that's where Leviticus begins. The, the, the first of the sacrifices is a sacrifice for offering. It is to offer unto the Lord a pleasing aroma by this burnt sacrifice. But the burnt sacrifice is so fundamental. And furthermore, in the New Testament, when there are references to Christ as sacrifice, it is often the reference to this particular sacrifice. Now, it is also the case that, for example, as you look through the Old Testament, there are situations in which we are told that a sacrifice is not accepted, that the sacrifice is considered unacceptable to the Lord. You can see in a passage like Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 12, where the Lord says, Though they fast, I will not hear their cry, and though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. So the false prophets, for example, or the prophets who are misleading Israel, or Israel when it is into idolatry and, and disobedience, the Lord simply will not receive, even in the, uh, the language that is used in the Old Testament, he will not allow his nostrils to receive their, their sacrifice, or their sacrifice is a stench in his nostrils, rather than the pleasing aroma that is, uh, that is mentioned here. Now what's also interesting is that this pleasing aroma is liturgical. That it, it is. It's a, it's a, part of, a part of Israel's worship is to make certain that the Lord, in observing their worship, and even in, the, in this particular sacrifice, which has the smoke coming up from the altar and coming right up towards the heavens, that, that God, in essence, receives this as a pleasing aroma. It is a form of worship, and that's what, that's what liturgy is. It's liturgy. It's... it's, 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 it's what we are called to do in worship. And you say, well, there's Israel. Israel's to do the, the sacrifice uh, of the burnt offering, a, a male without blemish. And uh, there are several things here we need to note, but I want us to think about the last word in the paragraph, that last phrase, a food offering with a pleasant aroma to the Lord. This burnt offering produces an aroma. And again, that's, that's Israel, the Old Testament. That's the Old Covenant. It is literally a pleasing aroma. So there it is, pleasing aroma for Israel. But what about for the church? Well, consider a text like Hebrews chapter 13. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 13, and we look at verses 15 through 16, we read this. Through him, that means through Christ. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So this is a 
the continual offering up of a sacrifice of praise, even a pleasing aroma, will come back again in the New Testament. So what is, what is the liturgy to which we're called? Is there a sacrifice? No. And as I say, one of the worst things that ever happened uh, to uh, Protestant churches is that someone began calling this piece of furniture an altar. And we've talked about this. It is not an altar. That is a uh, misrepresentation. There is no sacrifice here that calls for an altar. Uh, the church itself is an altar in that sense, that we are, we are offering up our hearts and our lives. But, uh, and, and this is where the sacramental churches, and the more sacramental they are, the more confused they make this entire issue for Christians. And, of course, this is one of the major issues in the Reformation, where the rejection of the Mass was not just a rejection of its priestly character, it was a, it was a rejection of the fact that the Mass is a continual re-crucifixion, a continual sacrifice of the Lord. In a Catholic Mass, there is an altar, which refutes the words of Jesus, it is finished. You see similar kinds of passages in the New Testament. Uh, in Philippians 4, verse 18, 1 Peter 2, 5, uh, Jesus is once for all this sacrifice and aroma pleasing to God. Notice something else that we see here in Leviticus about this burnt offering. There, there's something here we might miss if we, uh, if we go too fast. Notice what is to be done as the animal is brought. Look at verse 4. He, that is the one bringing the offering, shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So what's happening there? The, 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 the physical picture, the picture of our minds of, of what's actually happening here is, uh, is extremely important. So the animal is brought, in this case, from the herd. And, and so you have, a, you have a goat or you have a, a cow, uh, in this case a male cow, it's a bull, and uh, maybe younger, maybe older, but it has to be without blemish. But it is brought from the herd in both cases. It is an acceptable sacrifice. It is brought. And, and as the animal is being prepared for the sacrifice, what does the bringer of the sacrifice do? He lays his hands upon the animal. Why? Why, why, why? Well, number one, it certainly would indicate he's taking responsibility for this sacrifice. This is, this is my sacrifice. I'm bringing this sacrifice. But there's something else there, and you feel it. The something else there is an implied transference of sin and guilt from the one bringing the sacrifice to this animal. This is a substitutionary sacrifice. It is not the substitutionary sacrifice, where as we know, the, uh, the, the, the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sin. But they are a sacrifice that will hold back God's wrath against sin, as Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 3. But this, this laying on of the hands is more than just a, just a note here. It's something that is of critical importance because this is a substitutionary sign. Now, Psalm 88, verse 7. 
the psalmist says to God in his confession of sin, your wrath lays heavy upon me. Psalm 88, verse 7, your wrath lays heavy upon me. That was the, the psalmist's understanding of the nature of his guilt and his sin. It was laying upon him heavily. The same kind of language is used here about the hands being laid on the animal. It is, it is a heavy laying on of hands. Here's the thing we need to recognize as Christians. Right now, right now, our sin is heavily upon someone. Our salvation is brought about by the Father through the Son in such a way that our sin no longer lays heavily upon us, but our sin was imputed to Christ. Our sin lays heavily upon someone. In Israel, the sin of the nation will lay heavy upon someone. Upon whom will it lie? That's the huge question. Gives us really incredible encouragement as we come to worship. We're coming to worship and to celebrate the fact that our sin lays heavily on Christ. But Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left its crimson spot. He washed it white as snow. Our sin was not made a light thing in the atonement of Christ. It was imputed to Christ in full. On the cross, the Father, as it were, lay his hands upon his Son. This language is, is rich with Christological meaning that Israel could only anticipate, but that we have to see in retrospect. You'll notice that the, 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 the animal here is to be completely consumed. No part of this sacrifice is to remain even for the priests. They are to burn it all. And uh, we talked uh, about the fact that the, uh, the undignified parts are to be washed, and that means the entrails and the back legs, simply because, as you know, what happens to back legs of animals in the pasture? They are to be washed. And again, this is just a part of, of, of wash, me, wash me clean, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. The washing language is not just about lustrations or, or uh, bathing. It is right out of Levitical imagery. That washing is washing for atonement. It's, it's, it's washing even for sacrifice, as we see here. Now, one thing you just need to understand is that this means that the, the sons of Aaron had a very bloody job to do. This is something that, again, they just, you don't get this in Sunday school pictures you're shown as an elementary school child in Sunday school. You, you don't get the image of what these priests were doing. And now, remember something else. Remember, and those of you who were with me, going verse by verse and word by word through Exodus, remember all the scrupulous detail to the beauty of, of, of the priestly garments. Well, just understand that every time they performed a sacrifice, those priestly garments ended up covered in blood which is another picture that we just miss because we don't have the experience of Israel. But even as they will start out with these clean garments, the first sacrifice that comes is a sacrifice in which there will be blood everywhere. I did grow up basically in a grocery store. And uh, 
My dad was uh, in the grocery business my entire life and uh, was manager of a public store, which, uh, by the way, is coming to Louisville the fourth quarter of 2022, I think. And uh, there it is. Uh, but uh, it, was a different, it was a different world when I grew up. Uh, everybody went in real early in the morning. I started working for my dad the day I turned 14, went in real early in the morning, and the butcher's uniforms were white. And they didn't stay white for long. I determined when I was 14 years old that that was not the job I wanted. Uh, they had to do things that I did not particularly enjoy seeing done, although there was a wonder about it. I, I really did not want to do that. But all you have to do is look at a butcher's apron in the course of the day and then multiply that many times out because those animals have been bled. The animals brought for sacrifice have not been bled. It would make what you would see in a butcher shop look absolutely and quite accurately pale by comparison. But the whole point of this is that the animal is to be brought, it is to be rightly handled, every part of it is to be used in the sacrifice. The priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That is the burnt offering. But very, very quickly, we are told if his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, that is a, a sheep or goat, he shall bring it, a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So there you have first from the herd and then from the flock. So there, this is from the most superior sacrifice, the greatest sacrifice, which was of a bull or a male from the herd. And then the, the second is a male from the flock. And, and the third is a bird. Do you notice the structure is almost exactly the same? It, when it was a, a, a sheep or a goat, or it was a, uh, an animal from the herd, the, the, the bull, the sheep, the goat, they're to be treated basically the same. Basically the same. The picture would be the same. The picture is a little bit different for the bird. Verse 14, if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring the offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. His blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings. He shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, I, I really can't remember the first time I read through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. I was about 13 years old. And, you know, it gets to this, and I just admit, I have no theological imagination for why this would be necessary. I mean... Here it is. It's in the Bible. We're supposed to know this. The details are, are, are graphic. It's a, a turtle dove 
uh, or, or a, a pigeon, and those are related, and I'm not sure exactly how to tell the difference, but nonetheless, a turtle dove or a pigeon. It's a big bird with a big chest. Turns out that's important. You bring the big-chested bird to the altar, and with hands, you basically rip it wide open. The inside of the bird is dumped to be put in the ashes. The bird's flesh and its head are to be flayed out. Now, most commentators looking at this will say that the effect of not tearing the bird in pieces means that it remains intact and recognizably a bird rather than just being torn apart in pieces. That's why the Lord here tells Israel not to tear the bird apart in pieces, but rather to rip it open and lay it flat for the sacrifice. Again, the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So that's chapter 1. From the herd and from the flock or, or a bird. Scrupulous detail as to how exactly the burnt offering is to take place, but a parallelism between all three. Who would bring the one who would bring the others? Well, this has to do, uh, at least in part, uh, to two things. Number one, the relative wealth of the one who is bringing the sacrifice. So some accommodation is made in this three-tier structure. Some accommodation is made for those who may not be able to bring a, uh, they may not be wealthy enough. They may not have a herd. They may not be able to bring an animal from the herd. They may not be able to bring uh, even an animal from the flock, but they can buy uh, birds. Now, remember that by the time you get to first uh, century Judaism, what's called second temple Judaism, you have the, the sale of such things for sacrifice, the sale of all kinds of wares, such that Jesus will cleanse the temple of the money changers and then and, and involved in this entire enterprise or those who have the animals for sale so that you don't you don't necessarily bring by the time you get to second temple judaism you don't necessarily bring your animal from galilee down instead you uh, you purchase an animal there well that you have various various pictures here repeatedly in the old and the new testament but particularly in the old testament you you will see where there's a sacrifice the burnt offering and it's it's birds and, and that indicates someone who's of lowly estate. That's a, this is someone who uh, can't bring a, a bull and can't bring a male goat or a sheep, but can, can bring a bird or arrange for a bird. But that, that's the first issue here. The second issue is uh, an issue of the heart. Let's say that someone, in bringing a bird offering, uh, may at some point bring any one of these three animals, even of a certain degree of wealth, because there, there would not be an infinite number of bulls available, even for someone who, who might be very, very wealthy. That's another reason, by the way, why, at least in part, uh, this is to be a male animal. The male animal is considered superior to the female animal. And, uh, and, and by the way, that, that continues today in such things as bloodlines of, uh, of even thoroughbred horses. And, uh, it, and a part of it is because the, the male, one male 
is in reproductive value more valuable than one female because of the fact that the male can impregnate many females. And so the male was more precious and more costly in this respect. And yes, Israel's thinking constantly in these terms. But as you think of these, these offerings, these burnt offerings, the offering of a bull would be a major offering. But you'll notice that in God's eyes, the one who can bring only a, a turtle dove is also offering a sacrifice pleasing unto the Lord with an aroma pleasing to the Lord. It's another aspect of, of these burnt offerings that, uh, that certainly comes to our mind. And this is the fact that this is in a culture in which the sacrifice of any animal could be very costly. This is a, a culture made up of people who must live off of their animals and off of their crops, as we shall see later. They must live off of these animals. Many of these people may very seldom have had, for instance, beef to eat. Notice that the priority here is the sacrificial system. And so even as we think of worship, this is very costly for Israel. And it's very costly in another way. Mary and I uh, were out uh, on, uh, on the boat on the lake uh, Labor Day weekend. And uh, we were coming in in the evening. And uh, I smelled a campfire. I turned to her and said, that's just always a good smell. And somebody was cooking something on that campfire. And it smelled mighty fine. Things smell better as I get hungrier. <laughs> but imagine what it would have been like to be in the camp of Israel with the sacrificial system going on and to be hungry. I imagine what it would be like to smell these smells and maybe you do not even have access to such an animal. What you would be told over and over again by olfactory senses and all the rest is that the centrality of everything is God. That God is the superior one whose demand is first and foremost and must be recognized as such. What Israel may not enjoy except on festival days and perhaps even then scaled by wealth is to be what is to be brought to the Lord as the first function, the first responsibility of Israel. And you see this echoed also throughout Scripture in which we are to bring our best unto the Lord. And that means even the disposition of our hearts. It, it means even the, the, uh, the, the use of our voices. It means, it means that we are to, to bring our best because of the solitary singular priority of worship, worship of the one true living God. So the burnt sacrifice is a sacrifice that would be so obvious to the entire community that everyone would know that 
the liturgical life of Israel is central. It would be such that the smell of the entire community in the sense of Israel is an encampment. Or Israel later as Jerusalem will become the, the home to the temple, it will be that to approach Jerusalem will be to approach not just sights and sounds, but smells. Now, here comes another thought for us as Christians. Well, then what about, what about how unsmelly our worship is? I mean, what Israel's worship was loud, almost chaotic. When you look at, as you approach the temple, it was absolutely chaotic, which is, which is a part of the judgment that Jesus brings upon them. But even if it had been, been entirely orderly according to the dictates of the Lord, it still would have been a pretty confusing thing to see. I, I've never really had to worry about bringing a goat to church. I do have a hint that it would be even more difficult than bringing a toddler. Uh, Bringing, bringing, you know, uh, this, this livestock, you know, it's one thing to, you know, to walk up and we have to worry about where to put our car and, you know, how to get inside. But just imagine trying to get through birds and livestock. And birds and livestock do things. Even as you bring them to, 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 the, to the tent of meeting, they're still doing stuff. And all this is just going on. And then all the noise, animals aren't quiet, especially when they tend to be scared and confused about where they are. And birds, I mean, just don't even get me started. And pigeons, seriously. Uh, and you look at this and then you think, well, here we are. There's not a bird in sight. No goats, no sheep, no bulls. Not even grain or cereal, as we shall see in chapter 2 in, in the grain offering. So, so do we have less? Is this, is this less? This has been a part of the liturgical envy that has marked Christians from the beginning and has led many into error. For one thing, the olifactory. We, we just don't have any, well, we kind of hope not to have olifactory worship. Let's just put it that way. Uh, the, the, the fact is that there isn't any smell that's supposed to be distinctive of Christian worship. But there are churches where the first thing that you will confront is the smell of the place. Again, we've been in parts of the world. I, I guess I, I've seen this more in, uh, in the east, even in the west. The, the further east you go in Europe, into the lands of orthodoxy, uh, the more the smells grow in intensity. Some of you may have been in St. Mark's there, there in Venice, and you walk in, and the first thing that hits you is just, boom, smell. For centuries, centuries, oils and fragrances and incense have marked this place. There isn't a molecule of the stone that doesn't cry out all these smells. And you walk in here, and you know, dried paint. That's it. Yeah. So we, we have less. But liturgical envy leads a lot of people to want what uh, have sometimes been called the smells and bells of liturgical worship. So we're, we're, we're going to try to bring that in because we need, some, we need us some noise. That's what we need. We need us some noise. 
and, and some cacophony, and, and if it's not going to be bulls and sheep and, and, uh, and goats and birds, then let it be bells. And by that, I don't mean bells in a tower. I mean, you know, the bells that you, you walk in some of these, uh, you know, especially Eastern churches, and, and there's just lots of noise that's going on because we need us some noise, and we need candles, candles, we need candles, and, uh, and we need smells. We need lots of smells. I am an Anglican in music. And uh, I, I used to have to, uh, as, even as a, as a teenager, I know it's a very strange teenager, but as a very strange teenager, I would have records and I would be able to listen to some of this music. And, and uh, I was in choirs, I actually sang some of this music. And, and then, you know, the, the, the CD, and before that, the cassette, and the... Uh, and now we can stream just about anything. One of the marvels of the day is that, uh, and I will tell you, I think one of the most beautiful arrangements of O Come All Ye Faithful, and you can YouTube this. That's a verb, by the way, YouTube. You can Google. You didn't know you could, but you can. It's a verb. It, you, you can YouTube um, the uh, Christmas Eve uh, service at Westminster Abbey in London. And uh, the best one's from about five years ago. And uh, here, here's the thing you're going to notice. It's just, I mean, Westminster Abbey, just about the most moving place I ever am, just simply because of the history that kind of overwhelms me there. Uh, nothing liturgical, but, uh, but theological and historical. And uh, this particular uh, service is just, just very typical of what goes on there at, at Westminster Abbey on Christmas Eve. And so... Everybody processes in to O Come All You Faithful. How appropriate is that? O Come All You Faithful. Let's come. So they come. Except between generally uh, the, the, the third and the fourth verses, there's this long interregnum. And by the way, the organ is doing magnificent things. It's, uh, all, the, all the antiphonal trumpets are blowing. It's just the, the, the organ's doing a magnificent thing. And it was better when I couldn't see it. It was better when I heard it but I didn't see it, because now I see it. And what do I see? I see the dean of Westminster take a censer filled with incense and just swing it around. And I'm just thinking, you know, I have done things in my life that I just felt were, would make me extremely self-conscious, but I got to tell you, whatever it takes, I would not have it to stand in front of you with a burning incense thing on a chain and swing it around. Uh, I just what I just I just lack whatever gene evidently that is, but he he swings it around. But not only that on YouTube. See, I was blessed. I was just an I was an innocence listening when I could not see. My innocence was ripped from me by YouTube, and and so now I not only have to see him fling this thing around, but he's taking the incense so that it gets on the people. So you know, just would come here and blow a little on you and blow a little on you. And there's a nativity scene. I'm going, no, don't do this. Don't, don't, don't do this. First of all, don't have the nativity scene. But okay, but if you've got to have one, don't do what you're about to do. Surely enough, he goes over and puts some incense on the, the nativity scene. And at this point, I just, just please close my eyes. Get into music. He stops that. And then the final resounding verse of, oh, come all you faithful. But I was looking at that and going, you know. The smells and the bells, is, is, is that what you're here for 
And we don't have any of that. I mean, here we are, nonconformity. Nonconformity in part to that. And, and here we are, again, we just keep looking at this building. And, um, well, we don't really look at it a whole lot because it's not made to look at. It's just a reminder of the fact that there is this liturgical envy that falls upon Protestants and evangelicals, and especially those of us of the, of the Puritan stripe, and we say that proudly. It's just a reminder of the fact that there, there are things we don't have in worship that others have in worship, and it's because we don't think we're supposed to have them. And you look at Israel and you say, well, Israel had it. Israel had all this cacophony. Israel had all this noise. Israel had all this blood. Israel had all these smells. Israel had all this, this excuse me, liturgical detail. And that's, that's just not what we're given. And again, so why? Why are we robbed of all this? Where, where are our birds? Why are we robbed of all of this? If Israel had this picture all the time, if, if Israel had this picture over and over again, every day, remember, this is, not just, this is not just the Lord's day. It's not just the Sabbath. It's very different. This is daily, daily. There isn't any Lord's day here. It's just, it's, it's just daily. That's, what, that's what's happening. So if Israel needed that picture, don't we need that picture? Huh? If Israel needed these sights and these sounds, how, how do we get around with a God-centered world if, if, if we don't have the God-centering olfactory and auditory input that Israel had? How, if the daily ritual that Israel needed, Israel really needed, then how is it that we don't need this? Well, evidently, it's because it's all fulfilled in Christ. But that still raises that question, and it's the final question we'll consider this morning. And that final question is, if we don't do this, then what do we do? In other words, what is it that we do, what is it that we do that gets us through the week in a God-centered way? What, what is it that we do in worship that makes the one true and living God so evident, so infinitely prominent? that it orders everything we think and everything we do and everything we are. Well, that's where we are left with what are rightly called the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace. They're not extraordinary, they're ordinary. That doesn't mean they're ordinary in the sense of something to be taken for granted. They're ordinary in that these are the plain, simple, ordered means of grace. First of all, the preaching of the Word of God which you will notice is absolutely absent here. It's absolutely absent. It's in the background, not in the foreground. They're living Leviticus. They're not reading Leviticus. For us, it is the preaching of the Word of God, which is why, rightly ordered, the building we would use for worship would have a pulpit in the middle for the centrality of the Word of God, not something else. This is it. The fellowship of the saints, ordinary means of grace. We're together and we encourage one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We pray for one another. We draw strength from one another. There's something very different in singing one of these hymns alone than singing them together. We sing them together. That, that, that's the ordinary means of grace. The, uh, the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they center us. 
Even the, the Lord's days when we do not have those before our eyes or, or in activity, they're always in the worship, embedded in the worship and the expectation. They're embedded in our very understanding of who we are as a church. And uh, I'll simply say that if you are frustrated with the ordinary means of grace, you're frustrated with the once-for-all completeness of the atonement accomplished by Christ. Because with the horrible sounds and with the horrible noise and with the horrible sights, with the horrible auditory olfactory and in every other sense imaginable, the horrible events of that Friday we dare to call good, all of this came to an absolute end. That is why the veil in the temple was broken. That is why Jesus said it is finished. This is why the Apostle Paul will say it is infinitely superior. The writer of the book of Hebrews will say the very same thing. It is infinitely superior, this new covenant in every way to the old. If we are envious for the smells and bells, it's like Israel looking backward to Egypt. What we have is infinitely better. Well, thank you for joining with me. We have just a few minutes uh, for some conversation about the text. Yes. Verse 13 of verse one of chapter one. No, that's a that that's just an elaboration on the, the same the same offering. It's a it's an offering of food. In this case it would be beef. No, all, the, the point of the burnt offering is that none of it is to survive the fire. Every bit of it is to be put on the fire. In other sacrifices there will be uh, parts reserved for the uh, for the priest, uh, but not the burnt offering. The burnt offering is entirely consumed. Which, by the way, without going into you know theological speculation, uh, maybe one of the reasons why it is often this offering and this sacrifice that is referenced in the New Testament concerning Christ. Uh, it's a good question. Anything else? Well, if, if nothing else, I hope that when people ask you, why in the world are you going verse by verse through Leviticus, you have a good answer. Because there is as much Christ in Leviticus as in any portion of Scripture, and we don't have to look hard uh, to find Christ here in this sacrificial system as the fulfillment of all that is revealed here. Next week... Uh, we will turn to the uh, grain or the cereal offering and, and continue. Um, the, uh, the text will become a structure that we kind of understand in these opening chapters having to do with the sacrifice. We'll be looking at other details. But we're also going to find that embedded in all of that is m far more than you expect, and which is one of the reasons why, after just detailing these first, you know, these five sacrifices, Leviticus doesn't just end. There's, a, there's more for us to receive here.
Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that you've given us in your word such riches concerning Christ from this one chapter of Leviticus. Father, may we cling ever more closely and dearly to Christ as our sacrifice. And may we be a living sacrifice. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.